Hey, Elizabeth Slattery here. Before we get into today's episode, we would be so grateful if you would take a minute to subscribe to DIST on your favorite podcast platform and then leave us a five-star rating and a review. And go ahead and tell a friend about it too. I'll wait. Okay, done. Now on to the show. In 1944, the Supreme Court upheld the wartime internment of Japanese Americans. It's the first time the court applied strict scrutiny to racial discrimination by government. Over the protests of three justices, the court held the Roosevelt administration met that exacting standard. One of the dissenters, Justice Frank Murphy, lamented that racial discrimination has no justifiable part whatever in our democratic way of life. Nearly 75 years later, the court would explain that ruling was gravely wrong the day it was decided and has been overruled in the court of history. I'm Anastasia Bowden. And I'm Elizabeth Slattery. This week on DIST, we're looking at Korematsu versus United States. The court's decision is indefensible. I respectfully dissent. Because the majority in this case has not done what a court of law must do, I respectfully dissent. For these reasons and others elaborated in my opinion, I respectfully dissent. We respectfully dissent. I respectfully dissent. I respectfully dissent. I dissent. Imagine being subjected to a government-mandated curfew locked in your home from dusk until dawn. Then, imagine being ordered to leave your home and report to an internment camp. Imagine you had the misfortune of being born to immigrant parents who came from a country more than 5,000 miles away and across an ocean that just so happened to be waging war against your homeland. Imagine learning that your government assumes you're a traitor just because of your ethnicity. Imagine you're an American citizen. What would you do? Would you fight back? Obviously, these actions didn't occur in a vacuum. They came following one of the deadliest attacks on American soil, an attack that led to our entry into World War II. That's a date that will live. Well, I'll let FDR take it from here. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. As Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy, I have directed that all measures be taken for our defense. We will not only defend ourselves to the uttermost, but will make it very certain that this form of treachery shall never again endanger us. Let's remember Pearl Harbor as we go to meet the foe. Let's remember Pearl Harbor as we hit the Alamo. One week later, the entire West Coast was designated a theater of operations, effectively a war zone, And shortly thereafter, President Roosevelt issued Executive Order 9066, authorizing the Secretary of War to impose whatever restrictions were necessary to protect the area from espionage and sabotage, including the ability to control the right of any person to enter, remain in, or leave. Lieutenant General John DeWitt of the Western Defense Command implemented a curfew for people with Japanese ancestry, including American citizens. Then he encouraged their voluntary evacuation from certain areas. Next, DeWitt issued an order forbidding people with Japanese ancestry from leaving the designated military zone. 
and then came an order requiring the evacuation of all people with Japanese ancestry from the West Coast. They were ordered to report to assembly centers before being relocated to internment camps as far east as Arkansas. Those who failed to show up were subject to jail time and a $5,000 fine. All told, an estimated 122,000 men, women, and children, nearly 70,000 of whom were American citizens, were sent off to these internment camps. As you might expect, not everyone was prepared to follow these orders without a fight. Gordon Hirabayashi, a student at the University of Washington, and Minoru Yasui, an army reservist, were arrested for violating the curfew order. Fred Korematsu, a welder from Oakland, and Mitsuye Endo, a typist with the California Department of Motor Vehicles, challenged the exclusion and internment orders. Fred opted to defy the orders and was subsequently arrested, while Mitsuye reported to the assembly center and then filed a writ of habeas corpus from an internment camp. Mitsuye argued the government could not detain a loyal U.S. citizen without trial or charges. The curfew cases reached the Supreme Court first and were decided in June 1943. The exclusion and internment cases reached the court over a year later, in the fall of 1944. Before we get into what happened in each of these cases, here's a little background from John Barrett, a law professor at St. John's University and a biographer of Justice Robert Jackson. Fred Korematsu was born in Oakland in 1919. That means in December of 1941, when Pearl Harbor was attacked, he was 21 years old. He was a high school graduate. He was in the workforce. Uh, He had a good American young man life going. And the U.S. declares war on Japan because Japan had attacked us. And within the next couple of months, the West Coast gets militarized. President Roosevelt signs the executive order that declares the West Coast a military command area. After the exclusion order was issued, Fred Korematsu tries to kind of hide out and not obey and not get caught. And he's turned in really by his girlfriend's parents, and he is prosecuted for violating the exclusion order. The exclusion order was backed up by a federal statute that made it a misdemeanor to violate one of the military commands of General Duet. And so Korematsu is tried and he's convicted. There's really no factual dispute that he is a Japanese American. He's covered by these orders. He didn't obey the exclusion order. His sentence is suspended and he's placed on five years of probation. And at that point, an ACLU lawyer contacts him and asks him if he's willing to be a test case. And there are others who are test cases in this period. And so the ACLU takes his appeal upward to the Ninth Circuit. And the Ninth Circuit says this guy was never actually sentenced. He was just placed on probation. So is there a final appealable order here? They kick that question to the Supreme Court. And so there's actually a first round of Korematsu in the Supreme Court where the Supreme Court says, yes, uh, probation is you know a final judgment and it's appealable. But that all sort of pushes Fred's case out of the first round, the 1943 Supreme Court cases, into the second round, the 1944 Supreme Court cases. And so in the meantime, the court upholds the curfew in 1943, and that's the Hirabayashi decision. Uh, And then in 1944, Korematsu's case comes to the Supreme Court, where the issue is the executive power backed up by the statute that made it a misdemeanor to impose exclusion orders on Japanese Americans as 
and ethnic group. The Hirabayashi and Yasui decisions in 1943 were unanimous, but what was going on behind the scenes? Here's more from John Barrett. Both Murphy and Jackson were pretty uncomfortable in Hirabayashi. Murphy was threatening to dissent and Jackson was threatening to concur in a very kind of pointed, distancing himself, limited way. And Stone, you know, basically pulls them into unanimous decision by saying, this is just a curfew. You know, it's just a small imposition. It's not that big a deal. He's referring to Justices Frank Murphy and Robert Jackson and Chief Justice Harlan Stone. These weren't the only cases stemming from the war to reach the Supreme Court. Uh, There's another case called Kieran, which is about the execution of Nazi saboteurs by military courts, which is also unanimous. It's that that's 1942. I think there's pressure within the court amongst the justices to be unanimous and to support the government. Because, uh, you know, 1942, 1943, it's not clear that the allies are going to win. That's John Yu, a professor at Berkeley Law and former deputy assistant attorney general for the Office of Legal Counsel. As John was saying... By time of 1944, when the military situation is much better for the Allies, you could say maybe the court then is feeling less pressure to just rubber stamp what the government wants to do. It has the time and it has the you know, the space to, to really look at these decisions more closely. With the pressure to present a united front lessened, what happened in Fred Korematsu and Mitsuye Endo's cases? The court decided ex parte endo 9-0 for Mitsuye Endo. The justices didn't address the constitutionality of the various military orders, but held that since the government conceded she was a loyal American citizen, she was born in the U.S., had never traveled to Japan, and didn't even speak Japanese, she could not be detained without charge. As John Barrett put it, The Endo case Mm -hmm. um, is the forward-looking case that declares that the internment is illegal. And nobody ever remembers the Endo case. We focus on Korematsu, where the court kind of looked backwards and pretended it was still in 1942 and said, you know, affirmed the 1942 crime. Yes, that's right, dear listeners. The court dropped these opinions on the same day, with one holding that the internment of American citizens was illegal and the other upholding an American citizen's conviction for evading the internment order. What explains this contradictory pair of rulings? John Barrett has the scoop. There was a leak to the Supreme Court that the executive branch was on the brink of terminating the War Relocation Authority. So if the court could kind of wait and trail the executive branch, the executive branch could quit doing the awful thing, and then the court could declare it was illegal anyway. It's some sort of kind of two-way leaking, but I I don't think anybody's ever really proved it. The suspicion is like, you know, Frankfurter picked up the phone and spoke to Stimson, who he had worked for, who was the Secretary of War. You know, they were very mm-hmm. close. That's the likely pipeline, but there's not a smoking gun document. And indeed, the day before the court announced its rulings in Korematsu and Endo, the Roosevelt administration issued a proclamation rescinding the exclusion order and announcing that those being held at internment camps could return home the following month in January 1945. Undeterred, the court issued its rulings, including one upholding Fred Korematsu's conviction. But unlike the curfew cases, this one wasn't unanimous. The majority opinion written by Justice Hugo Black began, It should be noted that all legal restrictions which curtail the civil rights of a single racial group are immediately suspect. That is not to say that all such restrictions are unconstitutional. It is to say that courts must subject them to the most rigid scrutiny. 
Pressing public necessity may sometimes justify the existence of such restrictions. Racial antagonism never can. This was one of the first times the court subjected government action to the heightened standard of review known today as strict scrutiny. Justice Black continued, In light of the principles we announced in the Hirabayashi case, we are unable to conclude that it was beyond the war power of Congress and the executive to exclude those of Japanese ancestry from the West Coast war area at the time they did. Black acknowledged this was a greater deprivation than just a curfew, quote, but exclusion from a threatened area, no less than curfew, has a definite and close relationship to the prevention of espionage and sabotage. Justice Black continued, those who cast this case into outlines of racial prejudice without reference to the real military dangers which were presented merely confused the issue. Korematsu was not excluded from the military area because of hostility to him or his race. He was excluded because we are at war with the Japanese Empire, and the military urgency of the situation demanded that all citizens of Japanese ancestry be segregated from the West Coast temporarily. The opinion concludes, The need for action was great and time was short. We cannot, by availing ourselves of the calm perspective of hindsight, now say that at that time these actions were unjustified. Unpacking this opinion, John Barrett explained, it's a six to three majority that upholds Fred Korematsu's conviction, says that the most exacting scrutiny needs to be applied when the government is using a racial or ethnic classification as the basis for something like a criminal statute. So we would say strict scrutiny applies and the government has to demonstrate a compelling interest and has to demonstrate that the means it chose are very narrowly tailored to accomplishing that interest. In effect, that's all there without our modern vocabulary. And what the court is deciding is that the government has satisfied strict scrutiny, that the government has demonstrated a compelling interest and that picking on Japanese Americans explicitly on the face of these restrictions is narrowly tailored to accomplishing the objective. And what was that objective? The objective is national security. The military is concerned that the West Coast in those months following Pearl Harbor which is inhabited by 100,000 plus people of Japanese heritage, is vulnerable to double agents, saboteurs, spies, and that the people who would do that would be of Japanese ancestry, just sort of a racial supposition. There's not any evidence, there aren't any incidents, there aren't any saboteurs, but there is a kind of racist paranoia underlying the military orders. And so that's the national security policy that the government is defending successfully in the Supreme Court. Racist paranoia indeed. The Los Angeles Times ran an editorial in February 1942 that read, A viper is nonetheless a viper wherever the egg is hatched. So a Japanese American, born of Japanese parents, grows up to be a Japanese, not an American. Good grief! And this treatment of those with Japanese ancestry was not an isolated incident. As John Barrett explained, That's part of a very ignominious history of American explicit immigration and other legal discriminations against people from China, people from Japan, Asians generally, Asian Americans generally. And so this is in that, that string of ugly heritage. But back to that compelling government interest, as John Yu pointed out, the compelling government interest here is wartime. <laughs> you know, the war, World War II was the the most dangerous war the United States had ever fought up to that time. And so, I could you can understand the courts and judges being human beings, being deferential to the military. In general, the court usually doesn't find any compelling government interest to exist. 
you know, that nothing the government wants to do is so important that it allows people to be discriminated against them on the basis of race. Well, I think going forward, it was always thought that Korematsu was a singular exception to how tough strict scrutiny would be. Uh, no cases really survived strict scrutiny after Korematsu. And as you said, the aphorism became you know, strict in theory, fatal in fact. Alas, in Fred Korematsu's case, it was strict in theory, feeble in fact. But, dear listeners, we know you're here for the dissents, and there were three of them. First, Justice Owen Roberts, the only member of the court in 1944 whom FDR hadn't appointed, was perplexed by the damned-if-you-do, damned-if-you-don't position Fred Korematsu found himself in. John Barrett summed it up. Owen Roberts writes a dissent that says, look, this is just an unconstitutional whipsaw, because if you look at the orders that applied to Fred Korematsu, he is both compelled to be confined to his premises because he's Japanese-American and ordered to report for exclusion from the coastal area. And you can't comply with both of those. So it's unconstitutional to criminalize someone who you whipsawed into, by definition, being a criminal. The second dissent was by Justice Frank Murphy. He was attorney general in Franklin Roosevelt's cabinet for one year, 1939 to 1940. And then Roosevelt has put him on the court. So one of the things that one should give Murphy credit for is he's standing up to his president in writing this dissent. And Frank Murphy might not have been the most technically gifted lawyer, and his opinions famously were ghostwritten by his brilliant law clerks. But Frank Murphy had a very strong, clear political, moral value compass. And he looked at this and said, look, this is exactly what we're fighting against. This racialism is the values of our enemies, and our Constitution does not permit this. He calls it legalization of racism. He says it's unattractive in any setting. It's utterly revolting among the free people who have embraced the principles set forth in the Constitution. You know, this is really an anthem. It's beautiful, powerful, egalitarian moral language. John, you agreed. The best dissent in this case is by Justice Murphy, who just says clearly this is racism and it's unconstitutional. And I think he's right that What the government did here was that it just created the assumption that people who were Japanese American citizens because of their race were disloyal. They could have done, and this is what actually goes back to the other thing about narrow tailing. You could have done other things, like you could have had, uh, you could have removed everybody from these uh, areas if they are military sensitive, like uh, you know, or on the front, or you could have gone one by one and tried to find people who were disloyal. But to say you're just everyone who's Japanese American is just automatically disloyal is racist. As an aside, Frank Murphy died a few years later. John Barrett observed. So he's not part of the the path to brown, the racial equality cases of the 1950s. But it's very clear that he would have been. And he really, in a sense, is blazing that trail a little bit with these opinions that he's writing in the 1940s. The third and final dissent was by Justice Robert Jackson. Here's John Barrett. Well, Robert Jackson is the youngest of the three dissenters. Uh, So his is published last. And his is the most sort of complicated and perhaps a little bit um, sort of self-tortured is even a fair way to think about it. Um, Jackson had also been Roosevelt's attorney general. Jackson had been solicitor general when Murphy was attorney general. 
And then when Roosevelt put Murphy on the court in 1940, Jackson was nominated and succeeded him as attorney general. And so now Jackson too is in a sense, biting the hand that fed him professionally by dissenting from this upholding of Fred Korematsu's criminal conviction. And half of Jackson's dissent follows the Murphy path. Jackson says, look, all Korematsu did was be born to parents he didn't choose and have a nationality and ethnicity that he could not resign from. He's Japanese American by ancestry. And that's what makes him a criminal peer. And Jackson said, if there's anything to, that's fundamental to criminal procedure in this country, it's that criminality is not racially inherited or inheritable. So it is unconstitutional, again, in the sort of free-floating, due process-based equality way that Murphy's dissent said, for the government to have issued this military order and for Congress to have criminalized the violation and for Karamatsu to be convicted of violating this order. But that's not all. Jackson then kind of takes a realist or pessimist turn in the bottom half of his dissent or the second part of his dissent. He said, look, what are we, a civilian court, doing reviewing military policy in a case like this during wartime? We don't have an ability to make the military stop. The military is going to do what it's going to do. And so really, a civilian court should not legalize, should not affirm unconstitutional military conduct. In Jackson's view, the court shouldn't have even taken up the case for fear of what precedent it might set. John Barrett elaborated. And a Hirabayashi sits on the books for a court that comes along in Korematsu. And a Korematsu is going to sit on the books for the next time. Um, And in Jackson's much quoted line, he says, the principle then lies about like a loaded weapon, ready for the hand of any authority that can bring forward a plausible claim of urgent need. So Jackson's saying, you know, like, if we're going to be a rubber stamp, it's a disaster. And if we're going to stand up for the Constitution, the military is going to roll us and ignore us. And so really, you know, what we should be doing in these cases is not using judicial power. To the extent we're in a case, we have to vote for the Constitution. He says it really seems to him wholly delusive that we have to rely on is the people and the the country making political judgments after the emergency has passed. And maybe the military will rescind its racism, stop doing this kind of illegal, unconstitutional conduct. But that's really the only reason it's going to stop, because the military says it will. John, you has a theory about this. I think this is actually some of Justice Jackson's attitude coming through from when he was attorney general uh, to Franklin Roosevelt in the lead up to the war, where he also did things which he was later criticized for. For example, he famously said that uh, even though there was a ban on helping the Brit, uh, I thought it was a mistake, you know, under the Neutrality Acts, but Congress passed a ban on the U.S. providing military aid to Great Britain. And So Justice Jackson did things like this famous opinion about, oh, well, the United States can give some 50 destroyers to the British because they're, he called them overage destroyers. They're old. And he said, and we're not, we're trading them for a British base and we'll get them back sometime. So we're not really helping them. He came up with the most fanciful justifications for FDR as president in the lead up to the war. And again, don't get me wrong, I think that uh, you know the United States came to World War II late and it would have been better for the United States and the world if we had gotten involved earlier. 
But Justice Jackson had that attitude that, uh, well, what's the law going to do to stand in the way of what the government's going to do in wartime? And the problem, naturally, is that I think it involves too much about politics. I think the justices should just call it. If he if he thinks it's unconstitutional, then he should just say it's unconstitutional. But then to suggest that the courts should maybe hedge or pull back or alter its decision because they worry about the uh, political consequences of their decision. They worry about how the other branches will receive their decision. I think that's beyond the judicial role. They may think it or worry about it, but I don't think it should change how what they think is right and wrong under the Constitution. And if the military is going to just ignore, and President Roosevelt's going to ignore a decision of the Supreme Court, then let that burden be on President Roosevelt. A Supreme Court ruling is often the end of the story, but for Fred Korematsu, it was only the beginning. Decades later, a legal historian uncovered some illuminating documents. Here's John Barrett. Peter Irons, in the archives, worked through the Justice Department files from the Solicitor General's office and found the debate in the brief writing time period about how explicitly to tell the court that the military studies and belief that Japanese Americans posed a security risk had nothing behind them. That really the military policy, which leads to everything, including the convictions, was empirically unsupported. There is a footnote that is in the brief that the Supreme Court reads, and it's complicated to sort of parse out all the details about how much more could have been said, needed to be said, and what kind of deliberate withholding or not people in the SG's office engaged in. And this is up at the level of the Solicitor General himself. That issue is the basis for the filing of a petition seeking a writ of quorum nobis in the federal district court in San Francisco in the early 1980s. That's where Fred was prosecuted and convicted back in the 1940s. And he is one of a number of petitioners who file such actions. Gordon Kirabayashi files one in the state of Washington, Minyasui files one. And interestingly, among the team of lawyers representing Fred in this case is Peter Irons. Uh, so lawyer, political scientist, public interest advocate is, is part of the story. The writ of quorum nobis is a common law writ, but not much taught or studied or utilized. It's about infirmity at the heart of the matter or fraud at the heart of the matter, quorum. And the claim was that the Department of Justice had basically withheld facts from the Supreme Court that caused the court to misfire in the Korematsu case. And Judge Marilyn Hall Patel grants the petition, which vacates Fred's convictions. That was on April 18th, 1984, nearly 40 years after the Supreme Court upheld his conviction. Judge Marilyn Patel of the Northern District of California explained that the government knowingly concealed critical evidence and that the judicial process is seriously impaired when the government's law enforcement officers violate their ethical obligations to the court. Judge Patel also wrote that the Supreme Court's ruling in Korematsu stands as a constant caution that in times of war, our institutions must be vigilant in protecting constitutional guarantees. It stands as a caution that in times of distress, the shield of military necessity and national security must not be used to protect governmental actions from close scrutiny and accountability. John Barrett had a minor bone to pick with Judge Patel. And that is a, you know, an incredibly just outcome. 
Um, but it also is a judicial decision that lets the judges off the hook. You know, they were bamboozled. The court was bamboozled by the evil Solicitor General's office. And I think if you read the Korematsu opinion, and if you read the Hirabayashi opinion and the Endo opinion, there's not much doubt that the court knew fully that there was zero evidence that Japanese Americans were disloyal, were saboteurs, were spies, were a military threat. The court knew all of that. However, the Justice Department edited itself down and held back specifics that it could have given the court. And so, you know, who's the real culprit here is part of the issue in assessing the Quorum Nobis outcome. The Quorum Nobis outcome and the Neil Katyal as acting Solicitor General press release sort of apologizing for the SG's office behavior in the 1940s says that the culprit is DOJ. I'm not saying DOJ is innocent, but I'm saying there are other culprits in this story. The executive branch, meaning President Roosevelt and the military and General John DeWitt are huge culprits on the front end. These are their policies. And the Supreme Court, in reaching its decisions in Hirabayashi and Korematsu, mitigated a bit by its decision in Endo, is also a perpetrator, a culprit. So Fred gets exonerated, and that's proper and just. But I wouldn't pin too much on DOJ, at least not to the exclusion of remembering who decided the Korematsu case. From John Yu's perspective, though, the blame lies with someone else. It was really Franklin Roosevelt who was a driving force behind uh, the internment orders. Of course, there's this general who was in charge of the West Coast, General DeWitt, who uh, was pushing for it. But actually, when you look at the historical record, it looks like really it was President Roosevelt who's responsible. That it wasn't just him deferring to military judgment, but that was his own view and his own judgment. The buck stops with the president, after all. fight for justice continued with the passage of the Civil Liberties Act of 1988, authorizing $20,000 in compensation for each surviving person who had been interned during the war. The federal government paid out more than $1.6 billion to 82,219 individuals. And a few years later, Fred Korematsu was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Here's President Bill Clinton at the ceremony. In the long history of our country's constant search for justice, some names of ordinary citizens stand for millions of souls. Plessy, Brown, Parks. To that distinguished list, today we add the name of Fred Korematsu. John Barrett summed it up. It's a beautiful thing that Fred, you know, sort of lived to have that moment and receive that honor. And really on behalf of 120,000 plus fellow victims of this outrageous racial discrimination. You know, you only meet a couple of saints in your life if you're really lucky. And he's one. He's one of mine. And was that for so many people. He was a very quiet, distinguished, you know, senior citizen when I met him. But he sort of became a public face in the 1980s and thereafter for all of this and for the Japanese American community. And as John Barrett alluded to earlier, the Solicitor General's office put out a statement in 2011 apologizing for the office's involvement in the Korematsu case. Neil Katyal, who was the acting Solicitor General, wrote, 
Our office takes this history as an important reminder that the special credence the Solicitor General enjoys before the Supreme Court requires great responsibility and a duty of absolute candor in our representations to the court. And finally, though there has not been an opportunity to formally overrule Korematsu, Chief Justice John Roberts declared in an opinion in 2018 that Korematsu was gravely wrong the day it was decided and has been overruled in the court of history. The message to lower courts, litigators, and the American public was clear. Korematsu has no place in law under the Constitution, as Robert Jackson wrote in his dissent. My darling, please wait for me till then, no matter when it will be someday. I know I'll be so it would seem the stain of the Korematsu ruling has been erased in some ways. But as John Yu noted, the shameful legacy lives on in one line of cases. I do think Korematsu and its example is still casting influence on the court today. I think it can't escape notice that there's only two cases in the history of the Supreme Court that have allowed the use of race where strict scrutiny was overcome, and that's Korematsu and Grutter. He's referring to Grutter versus Bollinger, the 2003 case giving public colleges and private ones that accept federal money the green light to use racial preferences in admissions. But as John Yu was saying, Korematsu, the one time other than affirmative action that the court allowed the government to violate the principle of colorblindness, you know, the idea that the government should never treat people as part of racial groups, but as individuals, was a mistake, was a grievous error. And I think they're both testaments to uh, mistakes. Uh, the point of strict scrutiny is to really subject anytime the government uses race to the most careful, you know, dis- careful review. And when you look at both cases, I think the government actually fails to carry the burden. In both cases, the government thinks it knows better, you know, thinks it knows you can use race to achieve some greater social good. And I think in both cases, it'll turn out that actually they backfired and that they again showed why the government just should never use race uh, ever. There's hope, though, because... The court has steadily been trying to return us back to, I think, the fundamental principle of colorblindness, which motivated the Declaration of Independence and, I think, our Constitution. And part of the reason I think it does that is because they can see back at Korematsu, the one exception turned out to be a disaster for the court. And I think they're going to have that same attitude towards the use of race by colleges and universities. Unlike with Korematsu, the Supreme Court is squarely presented with the opportunity to overrule Grutter and make clear that the government should not be in the business of sorting people by race. In October, the justices heard oral argument in cases challenging Harvard and the University of North Carolina's use of racial preferences. A group of Asian Americans who were denied admission argue that these schools engage in outright racial balancing that penalizes them based on race. Here's a lawyer for the challengers in the Harvard case. Grutter assumed that race would only be a plus, but race is a minus for Asians, a group that continues to face immense racial discrimination in this country. What Harvard is doing to Asians, like what it was doing to Jews in the 1920s, is shameful, but it's a predictable result of letting universities use race in highly subjective processes. This court should admit that it was wrong about Harvard, wrong about Grutter, 
and wrong about letting the poison of racial classifications seep back into education. Whether it's motivated by good intentions or ill will, to quote Justice Frank Murphy, racial discrimination has no justifiable part whatever in our democratic way of life. We all must be treated as the heirs of the American experiment and as entitled to all the rights and freedoms guaranteed by the Constitution. Thanks for listening to DIST. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd appreciate your feedback, so send questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes to dist at pacificlegal.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star rating and tell your friends to check out DIST. <laughs> and, and up against the military, you know, what can a bunch of civilian judges really do when the military wants to do its thing? They don't have the guns in the tanks. I'm a deep voiced hag. <laughs> a deep sea hag. <laughs> Just this week and last week. So your podcast is about dissents, right? It's called Dist. I think this is one of the lamest dissents ever, actually. Well, it's funny you should ask because I actually do have another Robert Jackson um, case that we'll be working on, uh, maybe not until uh, late winter or spring. That is a hell of a dissent and and an interesting story. Elizabeth's always on the hunt for illuminating documents. I like it. Um, okay. ABP? Who the hell is that? Oops, that I'm a little dyslexic sometimes. <laughs> Are you? <laughs> ABBP. <laughs> Whenever I hear compensation, I just think of those, like, ambulance chasing ads during Jeopardy. Like, you could be entitled to significant compensation for fill in the blank. Anyway, um, just had to share that. <laughs> Is my voice too like gravelly today? Um, I feel like- hello, you're talking to the gravel. I'm not, I'm not sick though. Like, what's going on with me? I'm like, uh, I sound good, just good. <laughs> okay, thank you. Should we say shameful legacy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah let's throw that in there. Shame, 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 shame. shame. <laughs>